The text that Pastor John will be preaching from this morning is found in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 1438. 1 Peter, chapter 1, we will read verses 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, But believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Jesus said one time to his disciples, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and blessed are your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Blessed are your eyes. In other words, if there have been many great, godly, holy men of old who have yearned and longed and inquired and searched for something that now you experience, their yearning and their longing should be an echo of the gratitude and the excitement you feel about no longer being those who yearn but have. That's the logic of Jesus' words, and it's the logic of verses 10 through 12. So I want to read them again with you. The logic of verses 10 through 12 is, if there were prophets of old who yearned and inquired and sought after what you now have, And if angels themselves are so excited, they want to look into your salvation, 
then on this Thanksgiving morning, ought you not to feel wonderful gratitude for what they did not have and could not see and you have seen and have. Now let me read it in that light again, starting at verse 10. As to this salvation, referred to in verse 5 and again in verse 9, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. In other words, these prophets were searching yearning, inquiring, what is this, Lord? This is awesome. What are we saying? Verse 12, it was revealed to them, however, that they were not serving themselves. That was a painful thing for Isaiah to hear. We'll come back to him later. But you in these things, they're serving you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach to you the gospel by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. These things into which angels long to look. Not just prophets. See the connection there? Not just prophets long to look into these things, but angels, the highest order of beings in heaven under God, yearn and long to understand and see and get into the work of salvation in your life and in history. So the main point of this paragraph is that how much we should be inclined to join Peter in verse 3 saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, because all the things that were said from verses 3 to 10, and now because we learn that prophets, the greatest men of old, yearn to see what we now have, and angels in heaven yearn to get out and see and understand and look and enjoy the work of God in history. So what I want to do is step back now and ask salvation, that word in verse 10, as to this salvation. And when I ask, what is that? Do I need that? Do you need that? Is that just a religious word? Is there any secular relevance to that? And then, having said something about salvation... I want to look at how Peter in these verses 10 to 12 highlights the value of that salvation. Okay? Let's talk about salvation for a minute. Pose yourself this question. If you're honest, I think you'd be willing at least to ask the question. Do I need to be saved? Do I need to be saved? It's not the question, do I feel like I need to be saved? That's not what I'm asking. Because there is a world of difference between needing to be saved and feeling like you need to be saved. For example, if two minutes ago, a jet headed for Winnipeg took off from the Minneapolis airport and is making a big circle and is right now over Lake Nokomis. Losing altitude fast because his engines are gone. Heading straight for this room at about 300 miles an hour and 80 tons. 
Do you need to be saved? Yes. But you don't know that. So there is a world of difference between needing to get out of a situation that's deadly and knowing that you need to get out of it. Okay? So I'm not asking you the question whether you feel like you need to be saved this morning. Okay? I'm asking all of us, everybody in this room, to ask the question, do I need to be saved? That is, is there a circumstance in my life? Am I in a circumstance that's very dangerous? And if I don't get out of the way... I'm going to be wiped out. Or, to put it positively, am I in a circumstance that I'm about to lose something very precious that I could have if salvation came to me? That's the question I want you to ask. And all I want to do is let God's Word hear from 1 Peter. I won't go outside Peter. Since he's the one who posed the question for us by raising the issue of salvation in verse 10, I want to let Peter who knew Jesus Christ, who was the Son of God, who has the mind of God, tell you this morning the answer to that question. First, let's let him talk to us for a minute about what we need to be saved from. And you can, turn, if you got your Bibles open and you want to look at these with me, I'll probably go at a pace where you could do that since you only got two pages to look at, two, three. And if I were you and you had your own Bible... I would put a little S in the margin maybe beside these. Salvation verses. So that if you want to go back to them sometime, you say, well, I remember there's a message one time on salvation. And uh, I need to know what, what he was saying, and I've forgotten it. You can look at down the S's in the margins of First Peter and you'll have the whole message. Chapter 2, verse 24. Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you have been healed. So Peter's first answer is Christ died for our sins. Therefore, I conclude I need to be saved from my sins. Otherwise, he wouldn't have died for my sins. And he describes my sins as a disease. And he describes the cross where he suffered and the wounds he received as the healing for the disease of sin. And so my first answer about myself, you must decide whether you believe it's true or not, is that I've got a disease called sin and it's going to kill me forever. It is a terminal disease and there is a healing in the cross. Verse number two, chapter three, verse 18. Christ also died for sins once for all. I love that little phrase. He's not dying over and over. He took care of it one time. Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. Now, the light that verse sheds on my condition is that not only do I have a disease of sin, sin is taken me, has taken me, Far from God. So that when Christ dies for my sins, He doesn't just heal a disease, He brings me home to God. You see that there? In order that He might bring us home to God. So I've got a disease problem and I've got an alienation problem far, far away from God. And sin's doing all that. I need salvation. Verse number 3, chapter 4, verse 17. It is time... For judgment, there's the key word, to begin with the household of God. 
And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel, the good news of God? So the third thing Peter says is judgment is hanging over my head. And there's one way out, believing, obeying the gospel. If I don't crash Divine judgment upon my head. So I've got a disease called sin. I've got an alienation problem caused by sin. And the wrath and judgment of God are on my head if we don't let the good news of God rescue us. We do need salvation according to Peter. Fourth verse, chapter 5, verse 8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So the next answer Peter gives to the question is, I need to be saved from the devil. The devil, now you might think, good night, do you really believe in the devil? I mean, isn't that just like Jupiter and Mercury and uh, Venus? I mean, surely that's a mythological thing from another age. But if that's true, then Jesus came and he was kicking at shadows all of his life. And the whole Bible, which defines his death as a defeat of the devil, makes a sham out of the cross. In other words, Christianity doesn't exist without the devil. So you can choose that. You can say, well, I don't believe in the devil. But then you reject all of the Bible and you reject Christianity. Let's just go with it. And reckon that there is a lion, invisible, prowling through the world. And his aim is to eat you, which simply means destroy you so that he's not alone in hell. Satan is trying to kill as many humans as he can. The Bible says he was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And he's same today. So he wants everybody in this room to go to hell. And he will do everything he can to get you there with him, suffering in flames, because he knows he doesn't have a chance. He is so rebellious against God, there is no chance of repentance for him. And he wants to make you just like that, so you'll join him in judgment. So there it is. If you ask... Whether Peter thinks you need to be saved from something, the answer is you need to be saved from a disease called sin, from an alienation from God called sin, and from the devil and from judgment. Now, let's not leave it at that negative what you need to be saved from. Let's ask, does Peter have any statements about what we are saved for if we need to be saved? In other words, Is there a situation in which I find myself, which if something doesn't happen, I'm going to lose the most precious things that I can imagine? Let's get his answer here on this as well. Verse 25 of chapter 2. You were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. I think that's probably the most precious thing that we are saved for. We come home from our wandering and our lostness to the shepherd of our souls, who leads us in pastures green and beside still waters, knows every need we have, has a crook that he used to pull us back and keeps our wool clean and makes sure we get food and protection from the wolves and he loves his sheep and dies for his sheep. Come on home. Chapter 5, verse 4. When this 
chief shepherd appears. That is, at his second coming, Christ's second coming. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The second thing we are saved for is the glory of God. God himself, the shepherd, will stand forth and take justified sinners who have believed in the gospel and he will take a crown and put it on their heads and say, no more shame, no more guilt, no more humiliation, but honor and glory and praise folded up into my glory. You now have a part. I don't want to miss that. Not for anything in the world do I want to miss that honor that will give to me someday just for faith. Chapter 5, verse 10 called us to this. And chapter 4, maybe this is the one we should look at. Chapter 4, verse 13 says this. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that... Also, at the revelation of his glory, same picture as 5.4, you may rejoice with exultation. So he simply makes explicit now that when we come home to the shepherd of our souls, when the shepherd puts a crown of glory on our head, we will rejoice with exultation and our joy will be as long as the glory is long, namely forever. Personal relationship with Christ our shepherd, participation in the eternal glory of God, and perpetual joy. The answer to the question, do you and I need to be saved, is yes. Whether we feel like it or not, there is a witness. It is the witness of an apostle who knew the Lord of glory, Jesus, who was God incarnate, and who speaks by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and who knows your condition better than you know it, and who is willing to speak the word to you as he's doing through my mouth right now, and save you through the death of Jesus by faith. Yes, we need to be saved. Now, let's turn to the question, how valuable is it? And let Peter, in these verses 10 through 12, Highlight the value in five ways. I pointed out two at the beginning. Let me just highlight five. And I'm only going to mention them briefly because we don't have time to go into detail. Five ways that our salvation, hundreds of you in this room, are saved already. And you have tasted the glory. You have come home to the shepherd and felt his loving crook on your neck again and again, pulling you back and His caressing and His forgiveness and His care and His protection. And I want you to be more thankful for what you have when we're done than you are now. Number one, five ways that He highlights the value of our salvation in these verses. Number one, an amazing fact that Christ Himself, hundreds of years before He became Jesus of Nazareth, Christ himself predicted the sufferings of Christ. Have you ever thought about that? Look at verse 11. 
in the middle of the verse, it says, the Spirit of Christ within the prophets predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Christ predicted the sufferings of Christ. Now, what's the point of that? Why say that? The point of that is, Christ's suffering and love for you was not a bloody moment in history. It was a contemplated destiny for centuries upon centuries. We know it's at least 700 years old because it was Christ, Peter says, telling Isaiah to write about his sufferings. So 700 years Christ pondered his cross. Well, I don't think he started at Isaiah. His pondering of his sacrifice for you and your salvation goes as far back as the plan of salvation. And that's as far back as the mind of God. Nothing ever occurred to God that God never thought of before. Boggles the mind. But God is God. Jesus loved you with a dying love from all eternity. That's what I feel and hear when I hear him say, it was the Spirit of Christ that told Isaiah that he was going to suffer. Number two, when this happened to the prophets, they began to search and query and long to get into this and know what was happening in their heads. Verse 11 again. The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and increase seeking to know what person or time Christ was indicating. In other words, when Christ came to Isaiah and he said, in whatever way it happened, we don't know. He said to Isaiah, write this. He was wounded for your transgressions. He was bruised for your iniquities. By his wounds you are healed and the chastisement that makes you whole was upon him. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When that happened, Isaiah said, mm. Who? When? When? Who? Tell me. And that longing of Isaiah, Peter says, should cause you to be filled with more gratitude because you realize, holy men of old, long to know what is this? What is this sin bearer? What are these stripes? What is this resurrection and glory to follow that comes later in Isaiah 53? And God said, this is number three, in verse 12, the answer that he gives to Isaiah, verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. Isaiah, be patient. I know you don't understand fully what you have just written. And I know that I have told you that very few people are going to believe you and your life is set to be a hardening and a blinding for 
rebellious Israel. But mark this, Isaiah. There's coming a day when what you have written will be the evidence of the proof of the truth of the Son of God. And it will be the means of faith rising in millions and millions among the nations. And you will not have lived in vain. You are serving Minneapolis. November 21, 1993. 2,700 years early. I know this. You don't need to know it. You are serving them. So that when skeptical people in that congregation wonder if Jesus is real and if He really died and really rose, see that 700 years before it happened, it was described in great detail. The Holy Spirit speaking through the mouth of John Piper will quicken them to seriously consider Could it be true and could I really need to be saved? You have not written in vain, Isaiah, even though the whole nation goes into exile. Number four, the fourth way he highlights the value is this angel thing. Verse 12 at the end, these things, this salvation are things into which angels long to look. Now, the point there is not that angels can't look into them. The point there is that angels are not part of it the way you are part of it. Because they never sinned. They do not have to be died for. They are watching, as it were, outsiders, a history of glorious redemption where God is doing unspeakable things in His self-humbling, entering into that mess that they never entered into and they're watching this happen from all eternity that the Son of God, who is infinitely higher than them, takes on Himself flesh to get down there and suffer and die and be spit on and be rejected. And they're looking at this and they say, I can't believe this. Sort of. Look at what He's doing. And then the Holy Spirit starts to move throughout this whole rebellious world that probably the holiness of the angel said, smash it. And they're looking and the Holy Spirit is gathering a whole host of redeemed people like he is this morning. And they're saying, let me watch this. Look at this. Come here, Gabriel. Look at what's happening in Minneapolis this morning. That's, I think that's the feeling here. It's not that they want to look in and they can't. It's that they love to lean over the banisters of heaven and watch God work. And if that's the way the angels feel this morning about your salvation, who aren't part of it, how should you feel about it? Who are totally dependent on God's grace to be saved. Finally, number five, verse 12 the value of our salvation comes by realizing that it is brought to us through preachers of the gospel, but not just preachers, but by the Spirit of God sent from heaven himself. Let's read that. Verse 12. These things now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. 
And this is where we stop because this is what's happening right now. Do you see this? I am that person. There are millions of others. Nothing special about me. I'm called to do this. I am that preacher this morning. And I have prayed so earnestly. And, I, and I was, as I was sitting there asking the Lord for a, a text and a reassurance that it would happen, the text he brought to my mind, and I hadn't thought of it before I was bowed there in prayer, was Luke 11, 13, I think, where it says, If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Lord give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And I said, I'm asking, Lord. I'm asking that when I preach, it's not me who preaches this morning. You see that here in this text? Who preach to you the gospel by the Holy Spirit. Now, I believe He's here. And I believe He has spoken. And I believe right now in this moment He is speaking. And I think His job in speaking through my words is simply to awaken and quicken you to seriously consider the truth that has been laid out from God's Word. My desire, my prayer, is that you would believe and that believing you would abound in gratitude. You could have come into this service a skeptic and an unbeliever and you can walk out of this service believing and saved so that if the jet hits, you go straight to heaven. Lord, we're going to sing now. And we want to sing with all our hearts. My prayer is that you would grant faith to those who need to believe and never have believed. And that you would stir up more and ever-growing gratitude for this great salvation in those who have been believers for a long time. I pray that our singing right now would be the moment of release, the release of gratitude, the laying down of unbelief, the picking up of the cross, and the coming into your presence with the sacrifice of thanksgiving. In Jesus' name.